Let us hear God's word from Romans 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. But in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Um, As we begin here this morning, uh, you may recall the last a couple sermons I ended by making the point that Paul is endeavoring to bring us to the end of ourselves. He does not want us to hope in ourselves in any way. He, and the purpose, of course, is so that we will turn to God through Jesus Christ. And so I begin then with this question. Have you come to that point in your life? And I don't merely mean in your mind. This is one thing for us to understand It's another thing for us to actually internalize this truth. Our tendency, of course, as sinners, is to cling to something that we know or we have done or we have not done, something in ourselves that somehow makes us pleasing to the Lord. But Paul is trying to tell us there isn't anything. And so, again, I ask the question, have you come to that point in your life where you have Realize that you have no hope in yourself when it comes to being right with God. Well, with this in mind, let me first, of course, review what we've seen. Since chapter 1, verse 18, Paul has begun the major portion of his letter by addressing our sin. And his primary point is this. Due to our turning away from God, we deserve judgment. And that judgment comes upon us both in this life and in the next. We experience God's wrath day by day when we participate in sexual and social sins. When we look at pornography or lust for someone else, when we are greedy or we are gossips or we are good storytellers that like to stretch the truth, these sins are actually punishments for turning away from God. And then, of course, we're punished for actually committing those sins, too. Now, we ended in verse 32 last week, ended the chapter, um, by uh, seeing that when we are no longer motivated to obey, because we know the day of judgment is coming, uh, if we come to the point where we live life as if it's all that there is, or we say, heaven is for everyone except for the really bad people, and of course, I'm not one of those, When we come to that place in our thinking and in our living, it's a very bad place to be in. Because none of us are good people, Paul says. No matter what you hear people say at funerals. Furthermore, when we praise those who sin, we have now really accepted the lie of Satan that he gave to Adam and Eve. He told them that God is evil and that he, Satan, is the one who wants what's good for us. And so when we say that good is evil and evil is good, and when we praise those who do evil, we are really followers of Satan. 
even just here, I think it was Friday, I saw an article that talked about some supermodel who was saying it's a cool thing to be divorced before you're 30. It's just, it's sad, but do you see how our culture is at this point? Well, with a brief review now, let's transition to chapter 2. And let me, first of all, start in the realm of ideas here to try to help us to better understand the words that Paul is going to give us here. Um, and, And let me put it this way. It is likely, if not, I think I can say, it is true that every one of us here over the last several weeks, when we've heard these words of Paul, at some point in time, we have said to ourselves, well, I'm not that bad. I don't do whatever, fill in the blank, or you've pointed a finger at somebody else, again, at least in your mind. You said, I am better than that. I I try to be righteous and holy. I've never said hateful words, or I've never had an affair, or I'm not as bad as that person. Or I have, uh, you have said to yourself, I keep the Ten Commandments, or I love God and my neighbor, or I've gotten the latest shot and uh, support Ukraine and pay my taxes and so I'm, I'm a good person. Do you see the point? Our tendency, whatever our response is, is to hear these ideas of how sinful we are and try to push it away and try to say it doesn't apply to me in, that, in, in some way or another. Somehow we say to ourselves that Paul's first point here in chapter one does not apply to me. I'm different. It's true for that person, but, but not for me, or at least not as bad as, as he seems to think. And so once again, I, I think it's likely that all of us have said this at some point in time over the last several weeks. And it's not a matter of if we've done it, it's when we've done it, and are we aware of doing so. And so Paul's quite aware of our sinful hearts. Paul, of course, spoke to many, many people over the years as he was uh, planting churches and so forth. And he encountered, remember, he's in Corinth when he writes Romans. And so he surely encountered people in Corinth as well as other places who said, well, I'm a moral person. The Greeks and the Romans prided themselves, at least some of them, for being moral people. And they'll say, I strive to live a virtuous life. I uphold justice and prudence and and uh, courage and temperance. And Paul, of course, went to the synagogue, and surely he heard from some of the Jews there, well, wait, what are you saying, Paul? I, I have been circumcised. I, I have the law of Moses, and, and I'm a descendant of Abraham. I, I, you can't be talking about me here in chapter 1. And so Paul surely heard people try to say that God's wrath is not for them for one reason or another. I'm an Israelite, or the gods favor me because I don't participate in these pagan indulgences. And of course, if he were to be around today, he would hear the same things, wouldn't he? Maybe put in different words, but the same ideas. Today, of course, we often hear in our culture, well, I'm a good person, or so-and-so is a good person, maybe, or I go to church, or I don't go to the bar, or I give to charity, or... I am an anti-racist. There's something that we think that we are doing or not doing that makes us good enough. 
And so as we transition here now to chapter 2, Paul's addressing those who are trying to ignore chapter 1 and trying to say that those words don't really apply to me in one way or another. So with that in mind, let me now address this transition here briefly. Um, As I've said, we often hear chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. People will say, well, this is referring to the Gentile. And now as we come here to chapter 2, you'll often hear people say this is referring to the Jew. And I think there's some general truth to this, but I do think it's a simplistic way of understanding it. Verses 18 to 32 certainly address the unbeliever. And yet, as I've tried to make the case all throughout, uh, all people, including us, suppress the truth about God. All of us have turned away from him in one way or another and established idols, and so all of us experience God handing us over to sin. This is especially true of the unbeliever, but it's also true of us. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so as we come now to chapter 2, for those who say that this is referring to the Jew only, um, typically they're the ones who say chapter 1 refers to the Gentile only, to the, the non-believer. And some of the arguments that they give are are quite compelling, and maybe most notably, if you look at verse 1, notice that all the pronouns are singular. In English, of course, we don't make a distinction between you singular and you plural, Um, but these are all singular. Note also the word man, and so Paul is addressing an individual here. And then as you come down to verse 17, it says, you are called a Jew. And so notice the the argument is Paul speaks a bit more generally up until verse 17, and then he specifies who he is talking about. We also see Jew and Gentile uh, language mentioned in verses 9 and 10, as well as verses 14, 17, and 24. And so the argument simply is Paul is referring to the Jew. But I'm going to try to demonstrate that I don't think that that is the best way of understanding it. Um, In the weeks to come, I want to show you that I think there's a better way of interpreting these things. And I am certainly not alone, probably most notably, Calvin uh, has the same view as I am going to advocate, and certainly others have too. I think it's better for us to see this opening section, and and there's debate on how far we go, verses 1 to 5, verses 1 to 11, but this opening section is focusing especially on the moralist. Whether they're a Greek or Roman moralist, or a Jewish moralist. It doesn't matter. And then certainly, verses 17 to 29, he is obviously talking about the Jews. And then the verses in between are maybe some of both. So certainly there's debate here, and certainly I'm not sure every position is, uh, answers all the questions. But I do think that Paul is addressing if you will, a middle group of people, not just Gentiles, not just Jews, but those who think they're good, those who think that the gods are happy with them or God is happy with me because of something they have done or even not done. And so I I, I think Paul's being more nuanced than sometimes we will hear. And the purpose is like I have said before, Paul does not want any one of us to think that we do not deserve God's wrath. Paul is speaking to those who have not yet 
come to terms with the sin in their lives, he is speaking to those who are still hoping in themselves in one way or another. To those who are still clinging to something that they have done or something they have not done that will somehow ensure God's blessing. And so in the end, this is for all of us, isn't it? Because the only reason I repent and turn to Christ it's because God changes my heart. Hey, it's not because I do it perfectly. It's not because my repentance is totally sincere and my faith is completely genuine. By no means. It is by God's grace to us through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit in us. Okay. So with these broader thoughts here as we transition to chapter 2, I think we can now better understand what Paul is going to say. And so let's then look at verse 1 here this morning. He begins here with the word, therefore. And always we ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, What's the connection? What did he say before that now leads to this next thought? And uh, it does raise some questions. In in many ways, a different word would make more sense to us. Um, But I think the ones that have the most trouble with it are those who see this simple Gentile chapter 1, Jew chapter 2 emphasis. I think if we think of it like this, it makes sense. Since everyone suppresses the truth about God, his uh, his being, uh, all of us worship idols, all of us believe lies, and so on. Since everyone receives God's wrath in some way or another through sexual and social sins, and he has given to all of us minds that don't work properly. Therefore, even those who think that they're good people, even those who think they are nice or moral or well-liked or blessed or popular or not as bad as others, they are inexcusable too. I think this is how Paul is fitting this word, therefore, into his, his argument. Okay? We're not just talking about the obvious sinners that deserve wrath, but even the people that look good, the people that you would say, I respect them. They are godly people. They are someone I should emulate. Okay? And especially as we think those things about ourselves. And so Paul is saying no words, no reasonings, no arguments can excuse us. Now notice how he uses that word. (coughs) Excuse me. Therefore, you are inexcusable. That takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 20, which again says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so there Paul is saying, it is obvious. When we look at God's creation, I was standing out here for a while, there's this cute little bird hopping around on the pavement. You know, when you see these things, it's obvious God made that. And it tells us so much about who God is. And it leaves us without excuse. We cannot ever say, I don't know God, or I don't know things about God. And so now, likewise, Paul says here, Those who have this holier-than-thou view, they have no excuses either. And the rest of the chapter, then, is an explanation of why this is the case. 
Now, the next thing for us to observe here is notice, as I've mentioned already, Paul uses singular pronouns here. You see the word you or your several times just here in verse 1. And it continues uh, over the next several verses. He uses the word, oh man. Obviously, it's singular here in this way. And so it is likely that Paul probably has in mind a particular person that he spoke to, or maybe even several. He's reminded of a conversation that he had with someone a few weeks ago or something to that effect. And he, and he uh, puts it down on paper in this way or maybe someone a year before, whatever the case may be. But even though that may be true, Paul is writing it here in a way to speak to every one of us. Every individual, every you, every man, every woman, everyone who claims to be a good person, everyone who says, I'm not as bad as chapter one. That's who Paul has in mind. Okay? And so any man, any person, everyone who judges, and note that next part then of the verse, whoever you are who judges, okay, or you could translate it, everyone who is judging, everyone who thinks they are better than the people in chapter one, or to put it another way, everyone who criticizes, everyone who points out the faults in other people. Everyone who says, I don't do this, and that other person does, or I don't say this, and other people say it, or, or the other way around, right? Everyone says, I don't do this, and that person does. Okay? That's who we're talking about. And, of course, we do this in all kinds of ways, don't we? Right? We might say, well, I'm a Christian, and they're not, and somehow that makes us superior then. Or I'm a Protestant and not a Catholic, or I am reformed and not Arminian. Or I am a young earther and not an old earther. Okay. Speaking of cute little babies, some of us say, I have more children than that person, so I am better than. Okay. Or I tithe and you don't. Or I come to every service at church and they haven't been here since you know a certain date. Uh, or I am a true conservative, not a progressive, or I am a true patriot, not an America hater, or I never speed, or I never criticize my spouse in front of others, or I'm never late or take long breaks at work. Y you get the point. When we are criticizing somebody else, we are judging them. And when we are judging them, we are saying, I am better than that, and I am good enough. I can stand before God on my own. Now, usually we don't go through that whole process when we are criticizing people, but that's really what we're saying to ourselves and to others. Okay? The list is endless on how we do this. So when we think we are better than someone, we are judgmental, we are critical, now, let me pause and say this. There are right views. There are things that are true and things that are not. There are right beliefs and positions. But too frequently, we hold on to that and then cross the line into pride 
and superiority, looking down on others, and being holier than thou. There are certainly right and wrong behaviors, words that are good and those that are not. <clears throat> but again, we easily think that ours are right and theirs are wrong. And we should help you with the speck in your eye. All right, well, with that in mind, let's turn then to Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> Here, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is uh, speaking about a number of things, but especially for those who think they're better than especially as we come here to chapter 7 and verse 1. Notice that the words of Paul and the words of Jesus are virtually the same. Verse 1, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And now let me pause here and say this. When Jesus is saying this, he is not saying we should do away with all judges and court systems and so on and so forth. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he saying that we should not be discerning. Because if you look at verse 6, he tells us to be discerning. Right? Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. How are you going to know when to do that or not do that if you don't have discernment? So clearly we have to have discernment. Clearly there is a place for judges and, and courts and so on. But what Jesus is saying is don't be judgmental. Don't be critical. Okay? Don't judge other people in this way. And notice how he then says, whatever measurement we use to judge somebody else, we're actually breaking that measurement too. And so notice how he continues then in verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the uh, the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice, when you have a plank in your eye, you can't see very well. If you have a speck in your eye, you still can see pretty well. Jesus is saying, when we're blind to our own sin, how can we help someone else in their sin? So as we come back to Romans and chapter 2, Paul is saying the same thing. Notice how the verse ends now, here in verse 2. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, obviously, he words it slightly differently than Jesus, but he's making the same point. Okay? Whatever measure we use, whatever standard we use, whatever law we are trying to live up to, um, right? we're hypocrites because we hold other people to that standard, but then we give ourselves a break. We fail to live up to the same standard. Okay? And so Jesus and Paul then are saying we're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, notice... Isn't this especially true of those who think they do a pretty good job in life? Right? For the, the person who is constantly going to the bar and sleeping around and doing all these evil things, right? It's actually easier to tell them, you're a wretched person. 
The person who thinks they're pretty good, boy, it's really hard to convince them that they're not. Moral people, religious people, hey, it's, it's a fact of life. They tend to be better people, right? We tend to do good things, tend to follow the rules, to be, to be the compliant child, if you will. And so we're not talking about the black sheep of the family here. That was chapter one. Here we're talking about the child that does everything right. Okay. We're not talking about the person always getting in trouble, but the one who seems never to get in trouble. We have professions that do this, don't we? Okay. Maybe it's an umpire or a referee at a ball game. I just mentioned about judges, right? Policemen, political leaders, religious leaders, teachers, CEOs, bosses, and so on and so forth, right? We have people in these professions, and part of the reason they're in those professions is because they're better than. And there's truth to that. Hey, you don't want the bum on the street to be trying to uphold the law in a courtroom. You don't want the person getting drunk in the bar all the time teaching your children or people who dress like women who are men. But anyway, some people think that's okay. But do you see the point? Hey, good people tend to be in positions of leadership. Maybe it's in the home, maybe it's at work or something like that. Okay, you don't have to necessarily be the president of a company or whatever. But when we have these uh, kinds of people, these people who are seen as good, as leaders, who are better than, Paul's addressing them here and saying, but wait a second, you're not as good as you think you are. Okay. Now, when that is done, what is the often the first response? Often the first response, when you tell a good person that they are not as good as they think they are, what do you hear? Well, yeah, I'm not perfect. Or I'm just human. Right? We often hear this excuse, don't we? We say, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm not perfect like God is perfect. But, you know, compared to the other people, I, I'm pretty good. Now, again, you may not word it that way, but that's really what is being communicated. And do you see what's happening then? The good person has actually lowered the standard that God has set and is comparing him or herself to that lower standard and then thinks, I'm doing pretty well because I'm doing better than that person over there. Now, Paul's going to go on to say that our standard is perfection and we can't lower it. But what he's saying right now is, even that lower standard we have established, we don't live up to that either. And we're blind because we have planks in our eyes. We're blind to our own sin. So, for example, let's just pick one standard that is not uncommon for us in, in the church. Uh, you will often hear people say, well, my standard is to try to live according to the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. So we look through the Ten Commandments and we, we seek to live by it and so on and so forth, right? Good standard to have, obviously. And for some people, you will hear them say, well, <clears throat> we need to have the Ten Commandments in our courtrooms or hang them in our church somewhere. 
And then when that happens, that person or people think they're superior because they have the Ten Commandments displayed somewhere. Or maybe they can list them in order because they paid attention in Sunday school class and, and they think, hey, I'm keeping this standard. But just possessing a standard doesn't mean anything. And Paul's going to expand on that later in the chapter. But, you know, other people are more sincere than this. Okay? And they'll go through the Ten Commandments and say, well, look, I have never believed in another God. I have never made an idol. I've never used God's name as a swear word. I've never worked on Sundays. I've never dishonored my parents. I've never killed anyone. I've never had an affair. I've never stolen from county market. I've never lied in court. And so on. I just went right down through the Ten Commandments. And, and certainly this is probably true for most all of us. We haven't, in an obvious external way, kept, uh, or excuse me, broken this standard. But did you notice which one I left out? I didn't give an example of the Tenth Commandment. Outward obedience is important, but the Tenth Commandment then demands that we keep all the previous nine from the heart, too. Our behaviors are important, but our motivations, our thoughts, they are as important. And so Jesus, when he is speaking to the rich young ruler, did this very thing, didn't he? Hey, the rich young ruler said, I've kept all the commands. Hey, Jesus lists some, yeah, I've done all that. And he said, okay, well then go sell everything. And because Jesus is driving at the 10th commandment, what does this man really love? This is his, one of his key points in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in chapter 5. So if we have the standard of the 10 commandments and we're only focusing on it in an external kind of way, and we're not living up to the standard because the standard is far more than that. And even if we only focus on it externally, we don't do it perfectly. Okay, so then let's address the Ten Commandments in this way, in light of Jesus' teaching and certainly teaching in the Old Testament too. Have you ever questioned God's plan for your life? Have you ever had a day not go like you planned and like you expected and you've just grumbled and complained? Have you ever th thought that acceptance from others and being well-liked or something to that effect is, is your highest goal in life? Have you, ever, <coughs> excuse me, have you ever thought like the world? Have you ever grumbled about not being able to do your homework or hay or play in sports or go to the store on Sunday? Have you ever pretended you did not hear what your parents were telling you to do? Have you ever wished harm to another? Have you ever lusted for someone? Have you ever manipulated others to do what you want? Have you ever stretched the truth? Have you ever desired something that you do not have? <clears throat> Again, I just went right down through the list of ten and giving some examples of applying this to our hearts. Hey, if you've ever done any of these things, then you're not keeping the standard that you say that you're keeping. You're a hypocrite. You're condemning yourself. You're judging others, but in the process, you're judging yourself. You're ignoring the planks in your own eyes. The standards we use to judge others 
Paul is saying, we don't even keep them. Now, maybe we're not as bad as others, but we're still breaking our own standard. And this, then, can apply to any other standard that we may hold up. If you want to be woke and liberal and follow that standard, hey, you don't do that perfectly. We have standards at work, right? There are certain things that need to be done and so forth. The boss or you know, the board or whatever has put them in place. We don't follow those rules perfectly. Um, even in our relationships with others, we have standards, don't we? Now, we don't sit down, okay, guys, hey, we're going to come over and we're going to watch football, but then we're going to actually going to list out rules of how we're going to relate to each other. Okay? We don't do that. Okay? But there are unwritten rules when it comes to relating to other people. Every family has particular rules that we follow, and, and they can be different. A family with lots of children or a family with no children or one, hey, there's going to be some different rules. If you have all girls or all boys or both, right, there's going to be some different rules there. Um, but we all have these standards. If we have a general rule for life that I'm never going to have debt or ignore a friend or get a B, or root for a particular sports team, or vote Democrat or Republican, or, you know, whatever our rule is in life, Paul is saying, you don't keep it perfectly. Every standard we erect, hey, we lower the expectation, especially for ourselves, by first of all making things external and not from the heart, and then secondly, by finding exceptions for me, but not for thee. And we all have done it. In our culture, it's okay to question the 2016 election, but not the 2021. Exceptions for me, but not for thee. It's okay when my words are critical. It's okay, I excuse it because... Um, I'm just tired today. Or I'm running late. Or it's my time of the month. Or I got yelled at at work today. Fill in the blank. Okay. <clears throat> we all do this. We find excuses for ourselves, for our planks, for our sins. But we hold people to the same standard and don't give them a break. once again, as I've said several times over the last number of weeks, this is hard to hear, isn't it? But Paul is saying we need to hear it. Paul wants the person who cheers on his condemnation of those in chapter 1. He wants that person to stop and take a hard look at themselves. Okay? Now, let me say this. <clears throat> you might remember from last week that uh, I ended by saying that verse 32 leaves us in a pretty bad place. When we say that good is evil and evil is good, that's a very bad place to be in. All right? if, if we are no longer thinking about the day of judgment and we think that it's not going to apply to me or something like that, we're in a very bad place. 
when we cheer people on for their sin, that's a bad place to be in. But you know what's worse? What is worse than that is that when we sit in judgment on others and ignore our own sin. When we do not think that we need salvation, okay, or if we think we're saved and we're really not, that's a very bad place to be. When I was in seminary, they talked about this at different times. And uh, uh, basically, the, the point was, usually the hardest person to reach for the truth is the person who thinks they don't need it. The person in the pew who thinks that they are right with God and they're not, they're the hardest person to reach in the whole world. And so if you're trusting in your baptism or your church attendance or your religious activities, if you're trusting the fact that you read your Bible this morning and you've prayed or you go to Bible studies or listen to Christian music, if you're relying on your parents' faith or the doctrinal ducts that you have lined up properly, but not actually trusting in Christ, You are worse than the person who goes to the bar every day and knows they're not a Christian. When you think, well, I chose Jesus and that person didn't, or I'm part of the elect and that person isn't, this holier-than-thou attitude is just, it's awful. Because we're blind to our sin. It's worse to be blind to our own sin than to sin and know it. The prostitute who feels guilty is in a better place than the professing Christian who thinks his good works is going to get him into heaven. The shamelessly immoral person and the self-righteous critical person are equally worthy of God's wrath, Paul says. That's his point. So let me read here a moment from, first of all, from John Stott. And he puts it this way. Paul uncovers in these verses a strange human foible, namely our tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves. We are often as harsh in our judgment of others as we are lenient toward ourselves. We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. We even gain a vicarious satisfaction from condemning in others the very faults we excuse in ourselves. Freud calls this moral gymnastic projection, but Paul described it centuries before Freud. Similarly, Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century political philosopher, wrote of people who, quote, are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men, end quote. Or as I have often said it, We put other people down to make ourselves feel better. This device enables us simultaneously to retain our sins and our self-respect. And then let me read from Dr. Boyce here. And uh, he says this. The message of these early chapters of Romans is this. I am not okay, you are not okay, no one is okay. And the sooner we admit that we are not okay and turn to the one who knows that we are not but who offers us a way of salvation anyway, the better off we will be. 
Jesus does not excuse sin. He forgives sin. He calls the sinners, yet he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so let me end then with what I've been doing all along. This is hard news. These are things we don't really like to talk about. But if we hear what Paul is saying, what God is saying through the Apostle Paul, we can then end up in a good place. Because it's going to force us to look away from ourselves and look to the only one who is our hope. Have you done that? Oh, you who think you're a pretty good person, have you done that? Have you looked to God only? And not yourself at all. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. And again, a hard word for us. But Lord, we do pray that you would help us to heed this. That no one would tune it out. That none of us here would give any excuses. That would actually do the very things that Paul is talking about. Lord, we pray for your mercies to all of us that we would not um, look to anything other than you, that we would be open about our sin with ourselves and not try to explain it away. We are so thankful, Lord, that um, you have not treated us as we deserve, but that you have come to us through Christ. You've elected some unto salvation when we certainly do not deserve it. And we thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for Christ and his perfect life in our place, his atoning death in our place. We pray, Lord, that this would be our only hope for your honor and glory. We pray all these things then in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>